Well, one of my favorite verses that I just quoted in my prayer is found here, and it's what we're going to be beginning to dip into. It's verse 21, but let me read verses 18, second half of verse 18 through verse 21 to get us started. Paul says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Well, that's God's word. Verse 21 is one of the most quoted verses out of Philippians and one of the most popular verses in the New Testament because it is a summary of the heart of a Christian. A Christian mindset that is fixed on Christ and so enraptured with Jesus as the person and object of a Christian's affection that all other Areas of life, circumstances of life, difficulties of life, trials of life can be subsumed in a Christian focus where a Christian says to live is Christ. Everything is Christ. He is all. And even death, going through the the thin veil of this life to the next is gain because I get face-to-face Jesus Christ. Being enraptured in his presence with no more sin, no more sickness, no more suffering, no more death, no more demons, no more dying. You're just with Christ. That's the heartbeat of a Christian when you have a spirit-filled Christian mindset. And it's summarized in that verse. And it's really put this way. It's the Christian's joy. Christian joy. It's having a sustained joy that even when you're chained to a Roman guard and you've been through a couple years of prison and you've been through some court trials and you might have your head lopped off, it's Christ, and you're, you're for Christ, and you have a single-minded focus on him that, that gives you joy that is so strong and so supernatural that it even affects others as they see it in you. Joy, Christian joy. It reminds me of a guy I read about this week, and his name is Malt B. Babcock. Kind of a strange name. He was born in uh, the mid 1800s, he died at the ripe young age of age 42, just two years older than me now, and uh, so he's a pretty young guy. But anyway, he, he's, he's this young man who was called to preach and was sort of a brilliant preacher in the States. He was born in Syracuse, New York, and sort of an upstate New Yorker, but um, preached uh, the large part of his ministry down in New York City as a Presbyterian minister who, who just loved God. And one day he was walking along uh, Lake Ontario, kind of look, overlooking it from a bluff in upstate New York by Niagara Falls, and he wrote the, the poem that became the hymn, This is My Father's World. Just, you know, the grass is green, he's looking around, he's seeing creation, and he's filled with the love of God because he said, man, this is God's world. And then he said this, and I love this quote sort of right out of his journal. He said, life is what you are alive to. Think about that. What are you alive to? What energizes your life? Or put another way, what steals your joy? What snatches it away? And 
it doesn't take much to, for our joy to sink and for us to be down. But I'll tell you what. The point of life is Christ. And the goal of every day is to gain and regain the Christian mindset that Christ is all. This is what we do. This is what we're doing every day. This is what you're doing now as you're fighting against things that pull you away from Christ being gain. Christ is all for the Christian. And to be filled in the Spirit means you're fixed on Christ. And as you fight through drama, the drama of day to day, as you fight through the challenges, the goals, the physical goals, the things that need to be done, you battle as a Christian for joy, for testimony, for witness before a world where you say, Christ is all. He's everything. That's what we want. That's where you'll want to be. That's the sweet spot of the Christian mindset is Christian joy in Jesus. And it made Paul confident. He was a confident guy. We could, we're going to read through this paragraph. There's confidence that just is brimming through these words. I know this. I know this. I'm confident of this. To live is Christ, to die is gain. But guess what? He's not self-confident. He's confident, though. And I want us to have this confidence. I want us to have this mindset. And we find it through Paul's testimony in this inspired scripture that he wrote. First of all, Paul's joy was secure in life and death. And, you know, if we roller coaster ride up and down in the Christian life and joy, at the very least, we want to be secure in our joy right to the end. And when the end is coming, if we're on a deathbed or we, something happens to us or someone dies, we want Christ to be all in that moment. That's what Paul was facing. He was facing the possibility of execution, and he was saying, Christ is all. And his joy was strong in that moment. He wanted Christ's honor to be vindicated in that moment. So it was secure in life and death. Verses 18 to 20, whether set free or executed, Paul was fixated on Christ. Paul was confident to vindicate Christ with either outcome. Now notice back up at verse 18, the second half. He says, yes, I will rejoice. This is a transition phrase. He's talking about rejoicing no matter who picks on him verbally. Remember, he's in jail. It's sort of a rent house that he's renting at, um, for himself. It's his living quarters, but he's under probation, um, under the watch of the Roman guard. He's chained wrist to wrist with a Roman guard every six hours on rotation. And he's speaking out this book of the Bible, this letter to a church that he loved, to believers that he had he had witness to and evangelize these were Paul's converts that he's trying to shoot his joyful heart back to them from Rome to Philippi and so he's there and he's saying listen there's preachers that are preaching um, you know the gospel out of a good motive and you have sort of these others that are mocking me while I'm in prison they're they're sort of putting the the negativity on me for being a, a person imprisoned for the gospel while they're preaching the gospel free and and they're mocking me and afflicting me but you know what the gospel's going out so what I'm going to rejoice and so that's part of what is on his heart but then he's transitioning to his own testimony and he's he's saying that no matter what happens to me whether Caesar cuts my head off or not I'm not going to shrink I'm not going to be a coward in this moment I'm not going to let go of my joy that's what he's doing he's sort of fighting 
for the church. He's fighting to keep his testimony for the church so that they'll be strengthened. He's not worried about himself. He's worried about or concerned for his brothers and sisters in Christ. He wants them to stay heartened and strengthened in their hearts, realizing that Paul's not going to go down. He might die, but he's going to remain strong in his testimony. Look at verse 19. He says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus, this will turn out for my deliverance. What's this? That word this is an interesting word. It sort of unlocks the context. The this is him being in prison. The this is he's been through a couple years of court cases with a governor in Caesarea and a king in Caesarea. And now he's going in trial, you know, up up to Rome at, at the epicenter of the Roman Empire. This, this witnessing opportunity, this trial, this difficulty, things like you're going through. What is your this? You know, what's happened to you? Who's after you right now? What are you struggling with? That's your this. That's your situation. That's your circumstances. And Paul's saying, this is going to turn out for God's glory. In other words, Paul was confident to vindicate Christ with either outcome. Whatever this means for Paul, I'm going to honor Jesus. I'm going to prove that Jesus Christ is real. He is who he said he was. He's God, very God. He's changed my heart. And no matter what, what can man do to me? He said in Romans. Life or death, no matter the outcome, I'm not going to be a coward. I'm going to follow Christ. Everybody's got something going on in their life that the Lord is pressing them through for us to rise to this challenge and say, Christ is first. Christ is all. Not Jesus plus something, it's Jesus alone. My Savior and my Lord. I'm going to put him on display through my circumstances. That's what Paul is talking through. He's talking in terms of deliverance. You see that in verse 19, that word deliverance. It can mean three different things. It could mean that he's talking about being acquitted. In other words, he's set free by Caesar. It could mean that he is released from prison. That's probably where that translation comes from. It's, the original word is soteria, where we get the word salvation. I'm going to be saved through this. It will turn out for my salvation. What does he mean there? Some people think this means that it's talking in terms of his death and that he is going to um, you know, go to heaven and he's nearer to heaven than ever before, as Romans 13, 11 talks about. Salvation's nearer every single day and this is going to turn out to my ultimate release from sin where I'm in the presence of Christ. Kind of finish line talk, you know, that kind of idea. And, you know, those ideas are present, but Paul was confident in his deliverance and so I don't think he's talking necessarily about acquittal or or release from prison I mean he didn't know whether he was going to live or die he said to live is Christ and to die is gain I'm constrained between these two options that are coming up I'm hard-pressed I I don't know what's going to happen I you know I, I in one sense I've gotten so warmed up and used to the idea of going to be with Jesus and not having sin on me anymore that I just would rather go there but I'd rather stay also on your account to build you up and that's what we're going to talk about next week. So he he's he's thinking through both scenarios but what's he talking about? I think what he's talking about is primarily that he's going to vindicate Christ's honor 
through whatever happens. Uh, there, there is prayer support. There's Holy Spirit support that is strengthening me not to shrink in the battle, to be strong through the trial. The, the Greek version of the Old Testament is where we find this word in Job's life. Remember Job and all he went through with, you know, sin, all his um, boils that were all over his body and his friends who were doubting his character and tearing him up. I think Paul was probably resonating with Job through what he was going through. Job 13, 15, though he slay me, what? I will trust him. I will hope in him. And then Job says, this will be my salvation. My vindication. I'm going to vindicate God was in all of this. That's what Paul is thinking of, I believe. In 2 Timothy, where it was right before Paul truly was going to die, Paul escapes this scenario and does get back to Philippi and his mission work. But in 2 Timothy, later on, he's in a Roman Mamertine prison, and he said um, in 2 Timothy 4, I, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. Um, will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. And so Paul's character is being vindicated through this, and Christ's honor is being vindicated through this scenario um, in Rome. And that's what Paul's talking about. He wants Jesus to be on display. Now, he's relying upon a couple things that I want to point out to you. Remember, he's confident, but he's not self-confident. First of all, look at verse 19 again he says I know look at that confidence I know that I'm going to stand up for Christ through this why does he know that he says that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ here stop there first of all he emphasizes to the church that their prayer support for him means everything to him their prayers Literally through, it's instrumentally through their prayers that he's going to stand up under fire. He's not talking about his prayer life. He's, talking about, he's not talking about he's confident in himself or in his faith that he's going to stand up. At this point, he's confident that he's going to stand up under fire because he's got brothers and sisters praying for him. And he's more concerned about strengthening them and their faith and proving that their prayers matter than anything else. His focus is off of himself onto the flock. He loves them. He, he's, if you look later on, verse 25, he wants to go back and be with them for their progress and joy in the faith. He's concerned about their joy. He wants them to pray with joy and say, look, it's working out. God's going to work this out for me. He's going, to make, he's going to make something glorious through this no matter what. You think I'm chained up and upset, but I'm not. I'm rejoicing in the Lord because of your prayer support. Do you need people to pray for you? Do you care about praying for people? Prayer matters. Do you ever sense that people are praying for you and you go, man, I went through that and I can't believe how well I went through that, but now it makes so much sense to me that I did because people were praying for me by name, with specificity. That's why we have community groups. It's for prayer support. It's, it's supplies that are coming into your life and into your heart that comes through prayers. Now, I'm not underselling the fact that he mentions the Holy Spirit. That's my next point. But this point, don't miss it. 
It's it, the, the spirit of God's empowerment is coming in concert with our responsibility to pray. God will take care of our needs, but it's through prayers that the power of God is manifest in our lives because God gets glory through prayer. So he energizes it. He empowers it. I think a lot of times we forget that one of our primary ministries at the church is to pray for each other. Paul was not too big, he was not too large in his own mindset to say, I don't need prayer. He needed prayer and he called the church to pray and he strengthened the church by saying, your prayers matter. And they matter and they should, they should matter to all of us. Prayers are powerful. My wife, she understands this ministry and she puts me to shame. She will often bring up prayer requests that she just remembers where people say, you know, we pray for me for this and she's been doing it. I need typically some more um, tracks to run on to keep me faithful in prayer. And I, you know, I found a prayer list this week. It's called the church directory. I did this when I first came here. It's a great way to get to know names and try to put faces with names. But most importantly, what, I, what I'm doing, what I would call all of us to do is take a pencil and write out prayer requests next to the names. We're not just putting the numbers, the phone numbers out here so we can prank call each other, right? We need to pray for each other. We need to write down needs. And the very first page that um, actually was supposed to be page two, it's page one, and I like it. It's the, it's the missionaries. And we should pray for the missionaries. We should pray for the people that we support, the mission field. And then you have the leaders on the very second page, the school board, the elder board, the deacons, deaconesses, the directors, the staff. Good to pray for us. Good to pray for the team. Good to pray for people who are set apart to help lead at Anchorage Grace. And, and then you have the flock. You say, I don't know where to get involved at this church. Well, just get your directory and get involved on your knees. That's a great way to start. Because if you're praying for the needs of the people, then when you come to things and you participate, you're connecting on a heart level. There's no greater way to build community, build relationships, than to pray for each other. I told you I was going to wave that around. Pray for each other. Well, secondly, Paul was confident and certain that he would stand up under fire, that he would be delivered because of the Holy Spirit. Look at that in verse 19. It says, the help of the, whole, of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, why do I call the Spirit of Jesus Christ the Holy Spirit? It's because this is a reference to the Holy Spirit and the third member of the Trinity. Now, there are people who blur the lines between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This conference that's coming up this weekend talks about that. It's Sabellianism or modern-day modalism where people will say that God manifests himself in one of the three persons one at a time. And that's, that's heretical. It's a way of undoing the mystery of the Trinity. People go, I can't fully grasp the Trinity, so I'll compartmentalize God. Well, the problem with that is you undo the gospel when you do that. You have to have the Father who sent the Son, who is the God-man, who died a substitutionary death, was buried and rose again, physically, bodily raised to the right hand of the Father, and then the Holy Spirit who was sent at Pentecost in a powerful way, who comes and takes resonance in our lives, resonance in our lives as Spirit-filled temples of the Holy Spirit. And what Paul is saying is that Jesus Christ bought my opportunity to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's why he's saying the Spirit of Christ. 
That's what I believe. That's, that's what he's doing here. The Spirit of God bears witness of the glory of Jesus Christ. That's the beauty of the interdependence and, and fellowship, interdynamic and fellowship of the Trinity, the three persons of the Godhead. It's mysterious. It's one of those things where if you try to fully figure it out, you'll lose your mind. But if you deny any part of the Trinity, it's like you're losing your soul. You need to just leave the Trinity in biblical perfection and tension that the Scripture displays to us. Because therein you have the gospel. The ministry of the Holy Spirit was powerful and it was enlivened by the prayers of this church. And he was confident that the Holy Spirit was empowering his life. He needed the Holy Spirit. And he was, he was always praying. If you look at 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 3, saying, Brothers, pray for us. Pray that the word of the Lord will spread throughout the land and be honored. In Philemon chapter 22, which is one of the prison epistles, Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon are the prison epistles. These are the letters he wrote that are preserved for us in the New Testament that he wrote from this rent house imprisonment. And in Philemon 22, he, he was confident that God was going to, to deliver him out of this situation where he said, look, prepare a guest room for me. I'm hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. The reason he had that confidence is because of the supply of the Holy Spirit. Verse 19 again. Look at that word. The help of the Spirit of Christ. That word help means supply. Do you realize that we have the full supply of the Holy Spirit as born-again believers? There really isn't some second blessing that comes to us. We are baptized into Christ, baptized into his body, and we are temples of the Holy Spirit where we are given all of the Holy Spirit at salvation. Regeneration happens and we have access to him in full. But the question is, are you praying to be filled in the Holy Spirit? Either walk in the spirit or walk in the flesh. And there's a choice in the Christian life whether to rely upon this supply of the Holy Spirit or not. Supply is a word that was used in terms of Greek festivals and how people would supply the, the orchestra and the entertainment and the food for Greek festivals. They would, they would fill it up bountifully with, for a celebration. And in the Christian life, we need to pray for that fullness, that supply to be energized in our life. But we have all of him. It's just we need to give ourselves fully to him and for his help. That's what Peter would do and Paul would do when they would preach. And the Spirit of God would anoint them powerfully. They had all of the Spirit, but the Spirit's anointing and empowerment was strengthened at times. And it's praying for that that's important. Well, Paul was confident that he would vindicate Christ. And then secondly, in verse 20, he was confident that he would magnify Christ. His joy was secure with either a life or death outcome. And in this life or death outcome moment, he was confident to vindicate Christ's honor. And then secondly, he was confident that he would magnify Christ. The word magnify, we find in the word honored in verse 20. Christ will be honored in my body. It's a future passive use there, which basically means that Paul wasn't self-confident, but he was confident. He wasn't saying, oh, I'm gritting my teeth. No matter what happens in prison, I'm going to honor Christ with my own inner strength. He wasn't doing that at all. Paul was saying, 
I've just got confidence because you're praying for me, the power of the Holy Spirit's in my life, and Christ is going to be honored through this. I just know it. I just believe it by faith. That's what he's saying. God is going to do this work. He's not going to do it. It's God through him. He can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. It's another familiar Philippians verse, right? He's empowered to honor Christ. The word literally is megaluno, and it means to make Christ large in people's minds. To magnify. We use that word, and sometimes we don't think about it in terms of the word picture that is put there. It's magnification. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. We want to put God on display and show him to be large, to magnify him in glory and through the testimony. Look at the courage that Paul has that this is going to happen. First of all, he says, verse 20, beginning there, as it is my eager expectation and hope. Eager expectation is used one other time in Romans about the creation longing to be redeemed. You know, that personification of creation, the world, how it's under the curse. And it's, it's personified as longing and stretching for becoming the new heavens and the new earth. Well, it's used here in terms of Paul saying, I am literally, it's, it, the word picture here is he's stretching and straining his head, his neck, looking away from everything else, saying it is my eager anticipation that I'm not going to bring shame to Christ, but I'm going to magnify Christ. I'm not going to... Look at it there. He says he has an expectation of hope that I will not be at all ashamed. That's another future passive. It's that God through me will not bring shame to Christ. I'm going to be a coward. I'm not going to be silenced. A coward. I'm not going to be rendered ineffective. God's going to be glorified and he's going to be enlarged. He says with full courage now as always. Look at that boldness. It's happening now, and it's going to happen all the way up to the end of this scenario. Christ will not be put, ashamed, put to shame or ashamed. And with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. Magnified. You know, I sort of want to tease out this word picture here of magnifying Christ. What does that mean, to make Christ look large in your life? Well... There's a difference between a microscope Christianity and a telescope Christianity. Microscope Christianity would be like this. It's where you're sort of saying, well, you know, a lot of people don't know who Jesus is. They think of him as some sort of misty historical figure, you know, where you kind of have to prove him scientifically or in terms of literature or historically, you know, the historical Jesus. We need to sort of defend him because he's forgotten about and he's kind of, you know, in the shadows of scripture and, and you're like you're taking a microscope to, to mine the goal of Christ out of scripture and, and prove him to people like you're propping him up. That's how a lot of people feel about witnessing in the Christian faith. But the other way to think about Jesus Christ is the biblical way, which is to understand that Jesus is God, that he is great big, that he was, he is, and he is to come. He's the alpha, he's the omega, he's the beginning, he's the end, he's the first and the last. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He spoke it into existence. Colossians 1.15 talks about how Jesus is the one who created all things and it was created by him and for him. 
This is Jesus Christ. He's the one who is in Isaiah 6 in that vision where Isaiah said, I can't stand in your presence. I'm literally melting. I'm I'm damned. I'm condemned in your presence. This is the Jesus who is magnified. I mean, we're not, in essence, making him larger. We're just revealing his largeness as much as possible in our Christian life. So you don't use a microscope, you use a telescope. It's like looking up into the stars where you see these pinpricks of light, light and you say, wow, there's little tiny things. You know, we want to we see what, whoa, and you look in the telescope and you see what's really there. And you see something that's much larger than someone would reveal or would understand on the surface. Have you ever thought of the, uh, the giant stars, you know, the ones that are 1,800 times larger than our sun? Giant stars, just huge. There are these tiny pinpricks of light, but if we really knew what we were contending with, the largeness of a sun like that, a star like that, is awesome. It's mind-boggling. We can't even really comprehend that, and it's a created entity. Now think of God, the creator and namer of that star. That's the one that we want to telescope to the world where people can look into our lives and look through our bodies, how we're presenting our bodies, how we're living our lives, and we'll, we'll see the, the telescoped glory of God on display. Where does that happen? What well, happens when, you know, sort of things are on the line where you, you know, you lose your, your wealth or you lose friendships or you lose a loved one or you, you know, or you find out that your life is on the line or, you know, you've got some terminal illness and you say, Christ is all and I want to go be with him. That's magnifying Christ in your life in day to day, but also throughout your, you know, throughout your tough, difficult times that's what paul wanted to do to honor christ in his body notice that word body he's talking practically he's saying if i physically am beaten if i'm physically killed no matter what happens to this body it's just an outward tent and i give it as a sacrificial offering to the lord romans 12 1 and 2 was mentioned before in the worship time we present our bodies as living sacrifices holy and acceptable So you wake up, you go to bed, and you say, this is a bodily offering to Christ. We are bought with a price. We're not our own. It's the Lord's. Warren Wiersbe said, the body is a lens for Christ's glory. Ellicott said, my body will be the theater in which Christ's glory is displayed. You know, a missionary that sort of stood out to me this week is one called John Payton. He was a missionary who took his family and children down to the New Hebrides, a, a South Pacific island, and to a people group that were cannibals. And he was sort of the one who graduated from seminary at the top of his class, and his mentors were saying, why are you going there? What are you doing going down there? And in Peyton's testimony, which ultimately his wife and children died there, um, his mentor said, you will be eaten by cannibals if you go there. In other words, you're crazy. This is what Peyton said, and I like his confidence. I'll just read it to you. He said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave. Kind of an interesting twist in the conversation. There to be eaten by worms. 
I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. I thought that was good. Here's another one. Charles Wesley. We talked about the Wesley brothers, Oxford graduates. You have John and Charles. You have John who's more of an Arminian. Then you have Charles who's uh, more Reformed. And, and Charles, uh, as he was a brand new convert, he immediately began to evangelize people. And he went into prison ministry in the 1700s. And so 1738 um, two months after he was converted, Charles Wesley, he went into prison ministry and went to um, a place called Newgate Prison with his friend Bray. And Bray was um, known as sort of a, a, you know, a poor mechanic. And so Charles, who's the Oxford scholar, preppy guy with the mechanic, they go to the prison to minister to people right out of the chute. And so Wesley and Bray asked if they could stay overnight with some prisoners, be locked in overnight with those who were on death row to be executed the next day. So that night they spoke the gospel to these people, and one of them was a black slave who had robbed his master, and he was going to be hanged with a couple others. And so they spoke the gospel, and they said that night, all night long, to them, one, this Jesus, this one, came down from heaven to save lost sinners, and described the sufferings and the death and resurrection of Christ, and this group in this cell believed. And so the next day, the men were loaded onto a cart and taken to Tyburn. Wesley went with them. Ropes were fastened around their necks so that the cart could be driven off, leaving them swinging in the air to choke to death. And this is the fruit of Wesley's ministry as he um, wrote about what happened in his journal. Here's his journal entry. Next day, it says, They were all cheerful full of comfort, peace, and triumph, assuredly persuaded Christ had died for them and waited to receive them into paradise. The black slave saluted me with looks as often as his eyes met mine. He smiled with the most composed, delightful countenance I ever saw. We left them going to meet their Lord, ready for the bridegroom. When the cart drew off, not one stirred or struggled for life, but meekly gave up their spirits. Exactly at 12, they were turned off. I spoke a few suitable words to the crowd and returned full of peace and confidence in our friend's happiness. The hour under the gallows was the most blessed hour of my life. You know what that is? That, that's Wesley seeing people come to faith in Christ who gave themselves bodily and spiritually in faith to the Lord. And he saw these people enter into the kingdom of God. And that's what Paul wanted as a testimony for this church. It's important for us to gain this mindset. Do you have this mindset? Because this is the mindset that gets you through anything. This is it. It's the Christian joy that, that is found in a Christ-first mindset. You've got to grab onto this. And it's summarized in verse 21 beautifully. This is our, we'll touch on this and start here next week, but verse 21. For me, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ. You know, Paul is saying, look, if, if I get out of prison and I'm here and, and sort of I, I'm vindicating Christ and magnifying Christ's glory 
um, I know that I have a union with Christ. And so if I'm sort of still stuck here, I will live my life for Christ and his glory. And he knew that he had been reconciled to Christ. He knew that Christ, he was baptized into Christ. He knew he walked with Jesus Christ. He knew that he knew Jesus Christ through the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. He would know Christ through the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. He knew that he was a new creature in Christ. He knew that Galatians 2.20, he was crucified with Christ. He's saying, look, to live is Christ. As Christians, we are to be Jesus to other people. It sounds odd, you know, but we're the, we're the one who is an ambassador for Christ, right? 2 Corinthians 5. We are, we are bringing the message of Christ. We are coming as Christ's proxy to a watching world. And we've talked about this. I'll just bring it up again. People are wondering where you're at. Even if you're sort of incognito about your faith, they're still wondering. Because there's only two ways to be. Saved, regenerate in Christ, or not. And it's a religion of works and self-worship and things like that. And people are either lost or they're found. And so if you're someone who is found, people have smelled that on you at some level. There's an aroma of life in your life. There's this aroma of the gospel. And so we live it in front of people. And so to live is Christ. But to die is gain. And Paul knew that gain was death because he knew that the sinful exterior, the flesh that hangs on in our lives, that drags us down, will be gone. And we'll have unhindered worship in the Lord once we're in his presence fully. You know, Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth or value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That's what he wanted to experience in its fullness more than staying here i've heard people say look if i'm terminal you know just let me go you know don't sustain me here longer than i need to be here just release me to die means to loose like loosing a ship it's let me go let me go be with the lord death is swallowed up by unshielded the unshielded presence of christ don carson said you know, and he knew that his head would be cut off and it would be relatively painless for him to just go and be with Jesus. But to labor on here was going to be some hard work. But he was willing to stay, and we'll talk about that next week. This is the Christian's mindset. You know, how does this become real for us? Well, you know, we don't typically suffer life and death persecution, but we do suffer life and death situations where we have to respond to the Lord in this way. And I was reminded of one man's testimony who, um, it was a congregant, a member in a church in Chicago, and it's a pastor that I've met before, and he was talking about his um, congregant who suddenly found that he was terminal after some surgery. He was, he was a physician himself, and he went in um, to have some um, heart blockage removed, and he had a stent in there, and so he went in for surgery, and his family was waiting in the waiting room, and suddenly the doctor realized that he or she could not control the bleeding and that this man was going to die. So he went out and delivered that news, and the family gathered around in you know, heart sickness, crying and saying their goodbyes to him around the deathbed. So they were in deep distress. And this man, Andrew Chong is his name. He was unable to speak, but he was waving for a pen. Finally, they figured it out. And he couldn't write in straight lines, so he just wrote these words down 
the side of the paper. This is what he chose to write out of anything he could have written. He said, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And he wrote, Hallelujah. It took him about 20 minutes to write, Hallelujah. I mean, don't, don't you want that to be your heart in that moment? Where your focus is on others, and you go, I want others to be comforted, to live as Christ and to die as gain. And he said, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. That's Christian joy. It's inarguably supernatural joy. It's what we all have access to and what we should put on display in our Christian lives. Imperfectly, but we should strive for the Christian mindset every day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for time in your word and time around.